Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Despair in Soren Kierkegaard's depiction of it might be despair at not being conscious of having a self or in fact despair at not willing to be oneself or despair at willing to be oneself. But all three reduce to the same predicament. And there is a disease of the spirit, the spirit of the age, a kind of dividedness, a fear in which unity is sought, becoming or attaining the self, in negation of the self. And Kierkegaard calls it the sickness unto death. I believe we've all contracted the sickness unto death. And I believe our passage today on resurrection is the ultimate cure of this sickness. But rightly conceiving of the resurrection, I believe we can begin to conquer this despair now. And so we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In this, Paul uses a series of analogies from nature so as to enable conceiving of the resurrection. And his is not any old conception. You know, he's already said that they need to hold to bodily resurrection. And if you don't, you might as well be nihilist. Eat, drink, die. Because you have the sickness unto death. And so they could have easily conceived of souls going to heaven, departing their bodies. But Paul says this isn't good enough. One can presume that their problem, you know, is just more of the same, that they pit mind over and against body, heaven against earth, being over against nothingness, or in the way that Kierkegaard picks it, the despair of the world, really, in this sort of dualism, is the human situation. And so how we conceive of the resurrection is important because it pertains to how we begin to live it out now. An imagined discontinuity will pit us against ourselves. It pits us against other people in the world, the sickness unto death, and recognition of continuity in heaven and earth that there is a cure and resurrection is the cure. And so oppositional difference, the law of the mind against the law of the flesh, soul, body, flesh, spirit, is not the answer, but that's the problem. And the goal is to suspend this principle that has us in its grip, in which we would pit ourselves against ourselves and others. The answer is, my body is not, not I, but it's me. And so in Paul's illustrations, he's going to show us the continuity, not a dialectical difference within the resurrection body. And so let's read together from 1535. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. 
and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. I'll reference some of the verses on down, but they would have a, no problem conceiving of souls separate from bodies going to heaven. And so in his illustrations, Paul is using physical or material illustrations throughout flesh, you know, creation. And so what he's clearly not doing is getting rid of the material body. A seed has continuity with the plant that springs from it. It may cease to be a seed, but the same entity transforms into something else. And now notice that throughout this, God does it with seeds and resurrection. An entity can come to the end of its life and be transformed. It's still the same person, the same entity, and the person dies, and the one that is raised is the same person. It's the same self. But the same self will assume a different form. But what is sown in decay is raised, Paul says, in decay's reversal. The Greek soma, we've talked, is just the whole person. The body dies, the person dies. And we can say, see the same process, you know, that people change. Uh, that the person from an infant to adolescence to adulthood, the same self is there even if it has undergone changes of appearance. If you are looking for the continuous element in, in all of this, we, I think we continually have to say, well, God is the one who holds us in mind. It's God upon which this continuity depends. God has created organisms, entities, modes of being, every kind of environment. Paul's going through animals for the earth, fish for the rivers, birds for the sky. And these are of the planets, he says, are of varying magnitudes. These, the creation is of varying magnitudes. Then the key is that God is the creator and he can also recreate. He can raise from the dead. And so using, he uses the term flesh to denote substances used in creation. Not all flesh is the same, he says. Human flesh differs from animals. Sun, moon, and stars, they differ. But God can design a body adequate for resurrection and already has in Christ. But the key difference is actually down in verse 42. I didn't read this one, but look at it. The resurrection body will not be a dying body, a body of perishing. It is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. So decay or corruption denotes decreasing capacities, increasing weakness. We get exhausted more quickly and ultimate stagnation comes about. We die and this dying is definitive of the flesh. In fact, it's definitive of 
the soulish man, which is actually the word he's using here. And it can be definitive of a person. By contrast, imperishable denotes the reversal of decay, increasing vitality, strength, the way that Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, that even in eternity it will be from glory to glory. In verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So it's sown in humiliation or shame. I presume he's talking about the fallenness of humanity in which the body has become the center of corruption. And corruption here is not simply physical, but it, as a byproduct of sin, it's moral corruption. And even creation, he says in Romans 8, has been subjected to this futility, to this corruption. And so redemption in Romans 8 will include cosmic redemption. Splendor or glory, you know, what is glory? It speaks of incorruptible. Shame speaks of corruption, a failure of morals, physical decay. Glory is the opposite. So he says it's sown in weakness, raised in power. And so as degeneration and death, they're not simply physical principles, but they can be the controlling principle, the controlling direction of the person. And this is replaced with the principle of life, the person of the spirit. And that's what we're talking about here with spirit, is the Holy Spirit. And so... Paul, he does contrast two things, but it's important to understand the contrast. In 41 to 42, there are two sorts of bodies. The present corruptible one, the non-corruptible one, and the words he uses are psychicon and pneumaticon. Psyche, suke, soulish, that's the body that dies. Pneumaticon, spirit, spiritual, this is the principle of life. The contrast is not between physical and non-physical, but between the shift from soul, soulishness, to spirit. Pneuma, or spirit, not suke, and you know, the word here is spelled, you could almost just say psyche. Pneuma is the immortality, not the suke. And this immortal kind of spirit, this immortal pneuma, is from God. My point here is the spirit is not the human spirit. There are places in the Bible where it'll talk about the human spirit, but this isn't one of them. The soulish body does not become the spiritual body, this is key here, by ridding itself of the flesh. Pneuma, spirit, conveys immortality I mean, this is God, but this immortal kind of spirituality, it is the Holy Spirit. It's from God, spiritual body. He's going to use, you know, the soma pneumaticon. Does not mean composed of non-material spirit. It's not a gas, it's not a spirit. God alone is spirit, right? Paul is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the raised body is characterized by the uninterrupted transforming power of the Holy Spirit, there will be no frustration of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's contrast is between the body energized by either the soul, 
and thus it is subject to death, we're all created with the, the soul, or the risen body which is infused with the Holy Spirit. Don't mistake here, the body does not become spirit, right? The body is not the Holy Spirit. The person doesn't become deity, doesn't become the Holy Spirit, but is energized and enlivened by an undisrupted divine power. And so the suke, I'm just, this is a quote from N.T. Wright, the soul is not to be thought of as the platonic immortal soul. Rather, by psyche, suke, Paul basically means the whole human being seen from the point of view of one's inner life. You know, feeling, understanding, imagination, thought, emotion. We are, in fact, bound up with the life of the body and the mind. And so Paul's, his soulish human, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 15, he's made the same contrast. The psychicos, the soulish person, does not receive the things of the spirit because they are spiritually discerned while the pneumaticos person discerns everything. The spiritual person discerns everything. The soulish person will not inherit the kingdom. It requires the spirit as the life-giving, vivifying element. And so the contrast is between the person untouched by the Spirit of God and the power of God and the person transformed by the presence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jude uses a similar phrase. He says the person is soulish. This is one who does not have the Spirit. This is the opposite way that we often think of this. This is just the opposite of an innately immortal soul. What is immortal about us is that we encounter the Holy Spirit at resurrection. What is immortal about us is that we have the Holy Spirit. And so it's clear that Paul's contrast is between the present body animated by only the soul and therefore it's mortal, it's corruptible. And the risen body, which will be infused with the Holy Spirit, and it will go from glory to glory. It's imperishable. Now you say, oh, you're sure working that one over hard. I think we have to emphasize this. As some imagine the spirit is simply a principle set over and against the flesh. And that the raised body is without continuity with the material body. And that when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, which he does here, what they take that to mean is there's a discontinuity with the material body. Let me give you one quote. I could give you many, but this is from Irenaeus. This is 130, you know, Irenaeus is 130 to 202 AD. And my point here by quoting Irenaeus is that the church fathers never held to the notion that flesh does not, you know, that flesh is left behind or the body is not a, a material body. The psychical bodies, this is Irenaeus, are those which partake of the life of the soul. When they lose this life, they perish. Then rising through the power of the Holy Spirit, they are made spiritual bodies. That is, having a permanent and everlasting life through the Spirit. 
Thus, and Irenaeus wrote the book on, you know, Harris, on the heretics fighting Gnosticism. When the heretics take two expressions from Paul, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, they have not understood the mind of the apostle or studied the meaning of his expressions. What proves that the apostle does not speak of some other body, but of the body of the flesh, is that he says to the Corinthians plainly, indubitably, and without any ambiguity, always bearing about the death of Jesus in our body, that the life of Jesus Christ may be manifest in our body. For if we the living are delivered to death because of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. That's one quote. I could have multiplied those, but everybody would be asleep at this point. So, flesh is used in two ways by Paul. It can re refer to the principle of sin, in other words, he uses it in that way in, in Romans. But the, this principle, he's not simply saying the physical body or flesh is bad. So in Romans, he says, I of the flesh is sold under sin. And so he's going to use the term here clearly to refer, you know, not everyone is sold under the flesh. Not all are deceived in regard to the law. Not all are afflicted with the body of death in the sense that Paul is describing it. Because Paul describes the body of death, you know, it's the, the law of the mind pitted against the law of the body. He says, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. It's not just the physical body, it's this principle of sin and the flesh then is descriptive of this dynamic. It's not just the body. It's not just the, the standalone force of the physical body. Flesh means the combination of law, deception, sin, and an orientation to death. And so the body of death, Paul says, pits the members of my body against the law of my mind, and this makes me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. This is flesh. The body of death does its work as the body itself with its members stands outside the law of my mind and this constitutes the work of death. The point being here, there is a sin principle larger than just mortality. There is a taking up of death into ourselves that is not just, oh, we die at the end of our life. No, you can live a sin principle that is an orientation to death that is a split, that is a dualism, that is an antagonism. The members of my body, Paul says, are out of control, or I am out of control. He says, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Is he saying, oh, the body's bad? No, he's saying that this sin principle is bad. And so it's not because of God's good creation, he created us physical, but it's because of sin. And the precise place which sin dwells is not, in fact, he talks about it in my members alone, but it's in the law of the mind pitted against the law of the body. And so the entire dynamic, the mind against the body dualism, constitutes the problem. And so the problem is not simply the physical body or even the actual body, the soma.
It's a principle or orientation in which we're out of control. And so the biological body, you know, we have well-being, survival, reproduction. That's not what Paul is talking about that has taken its center place in the subject. But we might think, oh, this is my true interior self. Paul says this is specifically not who you are. That's the delusion. So two principles need to be set forth. We need to say it's the case that the essence of things is in the mind of God and it is to be discovered in the realm of mind and spirit. Certainly flesh, matter, physicality are not the ground of being. The word of God is the true ground, the true substance. We need to acknowledge that. The turn to the material and empirical can go too far. But we also must recognize that true spirit pervades the material world and the physical material world God declares good. And so while one can appreciate that prime reality is spirit, part of realizing this essence is not to subtract matter or flesh as an obstacle to the one who conceived it but to realize the physical body is fully itself when joined to the spirit. There's continuity. God is redeeming creation. He's redeeming us. God declares the world good. He declares the body good. That's not what's bad. Sin is bad. And so Paul is adamant that this mortal body must be clothed with imperishability. And the Gospels narrate strongly. They stress the flesh and bones nature of Jesus' risen body. He eats fish. Thomas thrusts his hands, or at least could have, into his side. The church, the early church in her theological writings, creeds, has insisted on the resurrection of the flesh, the physical body. Irenaeus asserts that those who deny the salvation of the flesh, he says, they despise the entire economy of God. And he's addressing the heresy of Gnosticism. I believe that apart from the resurrection of Jesus' crucified physical body from the dead, there is no good news. I think that's what Paul is saying. If the hope of resurrection in the New Testament involves nothing more than entry into a spiritual existence apart from the earthly body, then the gospel offers just one more expectation of spiritual afterlife, one more dualism, one more Hegelian philosophy, one more dialectic among the many in the ancient pagan world and in our present day modern world. We are surrounded by Gnostics. It's the natural religion of man. And Christianity at its heart is anti-Gnostic. And this anti-Gnosticism begins here. There is no spirit-flesh dualism. Soul and body are closely united. They relate you know, to God. Let me give you one more quote and I'll close with this. This is from Tertullian. The truth is that the flesh is the very condition on which salvation hinges. And since the soul is, in consequence of its salvation, chosen for the service of God, it is the flesh which actually renders it capable of such service. 
The flesh indeed is washed in order that the soul may be cleansed. The flesh is anointed that the soul may be consecrated. The flesh is signed with the cross that the soul may be fortified. The flesh is shadowed with the imposition of hands that the soul may also be illuminated by the spirit. And then the last thing he says, let me recapitulate. Shall that very flesh which the divine creator formed with his own hands in the image of God, which he animated with his own spirit after the likeness of his own vital vigor, which he set over all the works of his hand to dwell amongst, to enjoy and to rule them, which he clothed with his sacraments and his instructions, whose purity he loves, whose mortifications he proves, whose sufferings for himself he deems precious. Shall that flesh, I say, so often brought near to God, not rise again? God forbid. God forbid. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.